Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. My guest today is Sandra Sobel. Uh, she's a clinical assistant professor of medicine at University of Pittsburgh. We're going to talk about uh, her work in diabetes. So, Sandra, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me, Richard. Yeah, tell me about your research. What is, what's it involved? Absolutely. So, as you had mentioned, I am endocrinologist. And in my field, one of the main presentations of disease that we help manage with patients is diabetes. And so diabetes has been a big interest of mine throughout my medical career and certainly in endocrinology. And what really interests me with diabetes is working with patients in empowering them to understand their disease process understand what their numbers mean. Because as many people will know, diabetes is a medical condition that presents in a variety of ways. But basically what we're trying to do is help an individual regulate their blood sugar and maintain it in a goal range. And there are a lot of variables that go into how these blood sugars are affected. And so, you know, trying to get these blood sugar numbers in a goal range also involves having access to data. And so, Individuals can have access to data from a variety of ways, more traditionally, specifically in the 90s and then early 2000s, it was by finger sticks, pricking your finger and seeing what your reading was and using that information to try to make appropriate decisions about what you're going to eat, how much medication you're going to take, or um, even intensity of activity level. And so, you know, the frequency with which individuals would check their blood sugar in order to make those decisions varied based off of their medical team's recommendations, as well as what they felt comfortable with or, or, or truthfully what their life allowed. And so, as with any technology, fortunately, there are advances. And specifically in diabetes, that advancement has included the technology um, of continuous glucose monitoring. And so what this technology has enabled individuals to do is not just have snapshots of what their blood sugars are at certain times of day. Because unfortunately, while, while very helpful and still necessary for many individuals checking their blood sugars with these snapshots, I think everyone can agree that it's just an isolated number without much indication about what's going on in the sense of what what's about to happen. Is that blood sugar stable? Is that blood sugar going up or is that blood sugar going down? What are some of the curves look like that you've seen in patients? And, and what does that tell you, for instance, on a CGM? Aim for. Let's talk about first what's what's considered, quote unquote. So the goal is to keep the blood sugar in a range where it's not too low and and so too low is considered hypoglycemia, and that can be considered in general for individuals using insulin and a number a blood sugar less than 70. 
or too high. And we can spend a whole hour debating what uh, too high is. But in, in general, we want to keep that usually can be anywhere greater than 180 if it's after a meal or greater than 140 if it's before a meal. And so let's let's just designate it for um, our purposes between 70 and 180. If we can keep the glucose numbers oscillating, right, because it's a dynamic process between that range, then this is a success. And so what trends can we see? Well, sometimes we can see that the those numbers, this trend line stays above 180 all the time. And so clearly at that point, you know, the glucose levels are uncontrolled. And this can lead um, to a variety of adverse health outcomes either immediately or, or even years down the line. Or we can see that the trend line is below that 70. And that is also leads to a lot of adverse outcomes and can be extremely dangerous. And well, for, so, for, a, for a healthy person, what would be a average blood glucose and for someone that has diabetes, you know, in various stages of it, what would be, you know, an average that they might settle onto? Good question. So that leads to, you know, how is diabetes diagnosed? And so we have several ways of diagnosing diabetes. And so if someone has symptoms that are classic of diabetes, such as blurry vision, extreme thirst, extreme urination that's been going on for days, weeks, or sometimes in some cases, even months, unexplained weight loss, and then we check a, a random sugar and it's greater than 200, that's consistent with di a diagnosis of diabetes. If someone has been fasting and we check a random blood sugar and it's greater than 126 milligrams per deciliter, that's consistent with the diagnosis of diabetes. And then an A1C, this is a blood test that takes an average of blood sugars over the previous three months. And if it's 6.5% or higher, that's consistent with the diagnosis of diabetes. And so for, for someone who, for, so that's diabetes. Prediabetes is an A1C designation between 5.8% and 6.5%. And so the average is what that translates to for average blood sugars so a 6.5% is in the ballparks of about 140 milligrams per deciliter, just to put things in perspective of, of an average. So once someone has established the diagnosis of diabetes, our studies have shown us that an A1C of less than 7% helps prevent the development of microvascular or macrovascular complications being like diabetic nephropathy, kidney disease, or neuropathy, numbness, burning, tingling in your fingers or your feet, and even the macrovascular such as stroke, heart disease, or peripheral vascular disease. So that would be the goal then once someone has established diabetes is to maintain their average blood sugars below 7%, safely, safely. It's not how low can you go. Because if you go too low, that's when you start getting into the range of hypoglycemia. That can be extremely dangerous, where individuals can actually pass out or lose consciousness or have a seizure, and it can be fatal. So we, that's why it gets to be really tricky with glucose monitoring. And so what we're trying to do is keep it in this goal range where we're not risking any extremes of these thresholds. So well, can, we, um, can we talk about A1C for a bit? and? Sure. You know, you mentioned that it's an average over the past three months, but why is it called A1C and how does it work, this test? Right. So the hemoglobin A1C is measuring what's called the glycosylation of the hemoglobin model, molecule 
which is in red blood cells. And so it is one of the ways with which we monitor diabetes. It is also not foolproof. And so basically it's measuring how much sugar is attaching to this hemoglobin molecule. And so if the hemoglobin A1C is high, that's indicating a high average blood sugar. And we usually test it every three months. So, you know, a follow-up question is then why every three months? Why not more often if, if people want to know if they're doing well? Well, the average lifespan of a red blood cell is 90 days. And so with the normal turnover of red blood cells, it's, it's not helpful capturing it more often than that frequently because we're not allowing these new red blood cells to be glycosylated or have the sugar attached to them as some of the other circulating red blood cells. So that's why it's every three, 30, excuse me, 33 months. Now, okay, gotcha. There are medical conditions that can affect that. So if someone has more rapid red blood cell turnover, and so some individuals who have heart valves, that can lead to essentially breakdown of the red blood cells or shredding as, as they go through these heart valves. And so our bone marrow needs to more rapidly regenerate new red blood cells. Also in end-stage renal disease on in, with individuals on hemodialysis, they're having their blood filtered. And that can also lead to the destruction of red blood cells. And so again, the, red, the bone marrow needs to more rapidly regenerate new red blood cells. And so when we draw the blood in those instances, because these blood cells are, are more new and haven't had enough time to um, regenerate, the A1C can actually be falsely low. We can see a number and think, oh, not bad. But, but the reality is these haven't been hanging around for that long. And so we're not getting a real accurate picture. And then the converse is individuals, for example, who have iron deficiency anemia, where their, their blood counts are low. And so the body is trying to protect the number of red blood cells it has and keeps the red blood cells along, around for a little bit longer. And the, the response to that is that now these red blood cells have more time to get glycosylated, more time to have sugar attached to them. So we can get a false elevated reading in the, the A1C. And so while the A1C is certainly helpful and, and, and it will be here to stay, I'm going to come back to the importance of this continuous glucose monitor because it's real-time data. It is telling us what is happening now. We don't have to wait three months to know what's been going on. We can see what's happening in real time and make clinical decisions based off of that. If we eat a meal that has, you know, a bunch of carbs, you know, my blood sugar will go up high and come down slowly, but hers will like spike up high and then crash down really low and then kind of rebound. So it's weird to see like the very different profiles, you know, and, and then during the night with sleeping, it does all kinds of strange stuff too. So like, what are, what are some of the things that you've observed clinically on people's profiles and what does that mean? Absolutely. So, I mean, you bring up a real salient point is that a person's response or two people's responses to the same meal can be drastically different. And these are the variables that we're talking about, right? And so number one is what other medications might you be taking and their effects on blood sugars. So we know individuals who might need to be on steroids for other medical conditions, whether it's oral steroids, topical steroids, or inhaled steroids, those can cause elevated blood sugars especially postprandial or after eating, you can get dramatic rises in blood sugars. Activity level, what's activity level been during the day? You know, 
were you mostly working from home and therefore more sedentary during the day? And was your wife, you know, exercising earlier in the day or was more had to leave the house for X, Y, and Z reason? And so the muscles are now recuperating from that activity and taking, extracting glucose from the blood vessels and therefore can cause lower blood sugars. You know, and then we're having a whole slew of research that's coming out that's really exciting about the gut microbiome and how that affects our absorption of nutrients. You know, how does your gut absorb the nutrients of that meal? How quickly does it absorb it? And how quickly um, does the other person's? And that can lead to very different responses from a hormone perspective and the pancreas's secretion of insulin. And then what's what's the capacity of the pancreas to secrete insulin, right? We have these really cool cells in the pancreas called beta cells that are responsible for secreting insulin. And so based on beta cell mass, how many of these do we have and their ability to respond and secrete insulin varies from one individual to the next. And so it's this really fascinating and complicated physiology that's going on in our bodies that we're trying to understand and respond to safely. And so that's why we can see these dramatic differences between individuals while, despite the fact that they've consumed the same exact meal. So how do you estimate beta cell mass in a person? I've heard that I guess people are, you know, shortly after they're born and they develop, they have about a billion islets, maybe. So how do you estimate someone's beta cell mass and how do you correlate that with how they respond to different challenges or foods? Good. Um, so that the beta cell mass, so there are different ways. So one way to we measure insulin resistance is through an equation called the HOMA IR. And so we can get a fasting glucose level and a fasting insulin level. And so HOMA IR stands for homeostatic model assessment of insulin resistance. And so this calculation can let us, or at least give us some indication as to whether or not an individual may have insulin resistance. And so that is a measure that we can use to estimate how well an individual is responding to their endogenous insulin secretion. And and I'm talking now more for individuals who have preserved beta cell mass or beta cell activity. And that's for individuals with more like a type 2 picture or an impending type 2 picture. Now, individuals who have type 1 diabetes, that's an autoimmune um, disease where the body has designated these beta cells as a target for destruction. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And so then their ability to secrete insulin is significantly decreased. Some some other measures that occasionally are used are going back to these fasting levels are fasting C peptide and insulin insulin. So insulin is a hormone and it's secreted as a pro-hormone. So it has to be cleaved in order to be active. And one of these end products of after it's cleaved is C peptide. And, and that can be a surrogate marker as to whether or not an individual is secreting insulin. And so Sometimes if the picture is unclear whether a person has type 1 or type 2 diabetes, 
in the past, it, C-peptide was a measure that was used to estimate whether or not there was beta cell activity. And so I say in the past, and it is still something that can be used. It, like many tests, it is also imperfect. You can always find exceptions to the rule in medicine. And so it's, you know, we need to use that interpretation cautiously when we're looking at an individual and their blood sugar um, patterns. But those are some labs that we use to try to determine whether or not an individual has response to their insulin secretion, whether they are secreting insulin. Um, so, so you, for your patients, you'll look at not only insulin levels, but you'll look at C-peptide as well? Yeah, occasionally we'll get C-peptide levels as well to see if they're what their response, um, what their endogenous production of insulin is. So we can. Use- why does that? Why does that tell you any more than insulin? I've, yeah, I've never heard of anyone looking at that. I thought C peptide is a precursor of insulin, right? Or is it? Uh, is it's- this something that insulin is broken down into? Correct. Well, so it correct. So we have the pro hormone, and as it's cleaved, one of the products that results from this cleaving is the C peptide level. And so the C-peptide helps correlate whether this insulin that we're measuring is coming from the own individual's body. Um, Because there can be cases when individuals are on insulin therapy, then the C-peptide level would be expected to be low because Uh, they're no longer making um, the insulin themselves. It's coming from exogenous sources. Um, Well, that's smart because you can track if someone's on insulin. Um, If you look at their C-peptide, you can see if their body is... uh, making insulin and how much and if they've been on it for a while, does that does that decrease the amount of insulin they make themselves? The body says, Oh, I'm getting it from the outside, so I don't need to worry about making it. Well, sure. So that does happen and it's not only exclusive to, you know, the pancreas, but also when we supplement medications for other glands that make hormones. And so just to clarify, when when someone's on insulin therapy, we don't after that, we don't routinely check C-peptide levels because of the fact that when they're taking exogenous insulin, we have this expectation that um, the C-peptide level will go low because as you um, said, and, and it's correct, the exogenous medication is now taking over the role of what that gland would have otherwise been tasked to do. But there are, especially prior to starting medications, and if we have someone that we see in clinic and sometimes it's not clear are we looking at a type 1 or a type 2 picture? There are antibodies we can send because, as I mentioned before, this is an, type 1 is an autoimmune process and there are certain antibodies that can be sent to try to help clarify if, if that's what we're capturing at that point in time. And then C-peptide can also be helpful because if it is very high, then we might be more suspicious that this is not a type 1 picture um, because we would expect C-peptide levels to be low normal or low in that situation prior to the initiation of insulin. So when are you, when are you filing your patent to make a uh, continuous insulin monitor to go with the, the CGM? <laughs> well, so I, fortunately, I don't have to do that. There, is, there are very smart people that are doing this already. And that's what's fascinating about this is, and I, and I guess this was the long answer to get to your question about the research. I wanted to see how people, if we empowered them, with data, their own data. How do they take that and um, use it? Because it was clear already in the early 2000s that continuous glucose monitors, when they were reliable and accurate, 
could help reduce A1Cs, but maybe even more importantly, especially in these individuals with type 1 diabetes, help reduce hypoglycemia, low blood sugars, which um, for anyone who lives with type 1 diabetes or um, cares for someone who has type 1 diabetes knows how scary that is. And so how exciting now to be able to know if you're going low or anticipate a potential low blood sugar and respond to that. And so as with any new technologies, though, the, the issue is accessibility of those resources. And so several years ago, with with colleagues in my division, we were able to apply for an institutional grant to be able to provide the opportunity for individuals living in an urban environment, maybe with lack of resources to this technology to get it. At the same time, get also diabetes education at the same time that they saw the endocrinologist. And what we saw was that people had really great responses to accessibility of resources that the continuous glucose monitor provided them information about their blood sugars that they didn't, they weren't aware of and were able to use that data to improve their blood sugars. And then fast forward several years after that, a colleague and I applied for another institutional grant, which we were awarded to use continuous glucose monitors early on in the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes or even in prediabetes to try to see if we aggressively use insulin to reverse diabetes. And this was a pilot study, more of a proof of concept that we could safely use insulin therapy early on in the disease process and use the continuous glucose monitor to ensure safety while we were using insulin this early on and also see if we could provide some rest for the beta cells, these cells that make insulin, and see if after stopping insulin for after two to four weeks, would the beta cells wake back up? And oh, that's so, interesting. What happened there? Yes. So it was. It was. What's really exciting about that is because if you just diagnose somebody with diabetes, the standard of care right now is, okay, let's go on a, uh, obviously lifestyle management is always number one and, and always should be number one. And then in addition to that, let's start some pills. And if that doesn't work so well, let's add some more pills. If that doesn't work so so well, let's add some other medications. Now we have some injections and then further on, okay, now insulin. And so we have, we've had studies that have shown that actually using insulin early on in the diagnosis, when they were monitored in a hospital setting and everything was catered as far as their meals, their insulin doses, some of these individuals went into diabetes remission. And so what we tried to figure out was, can we replicate this potentially in an outpatient setting, not in the hospital? Because real life happens in the outpatient setting. Now, we only it, this was a pilot study, as I mentioned. So we only had 10 participants, and we look forward to actually testing whether or not for diabetes remission. What we were trying to look at first was to see, would individuals with newly diagnosed type 2 diabetes be receptive to using insulin this early on and appropriately be able to use the continuous glucose monitor to make insulin treatment decisions. And, and so we saw that, yes, that in fact can happen. Individuals are very able to, to use the data and make appropriate decisions, but it was not enough patients right now to make any definitive conclusions about diabetes remission, but that is exciting data to use to form our next proposal and grant to, to 
look into that further. So, you know, how do you get an estimate that the beta cells, like you said, have rested? Um, I guess they wouldn't regrow, but was the amount of C-peptide, you know, higher after the, uh, the intervention with insulin for a few weeks? Or, you know, how long did it take to make a change in the C-peptide, you know, profile? What, what did you observe? Right. So in these, the outcome measures, when we were looking at their responses, one was to see, you know, could we reach goal fasting glucose levels and postprandial? And so, again, postprandial means after um, eating. And what we were trying to achieve was a goal fasting blood sugar of less than 100 and a goal postprandial blood sugar less than 120 milligrams per deciliter. And so what, what we were seeing was how, how many people could achieve that and how long did it take? And so these individuals were given insulin therapy over a course of two to four weeks. And so, so of the 10 participants, we had seven achieve these goal fasting glucose levels and eight of them were able to achieve goal to our postprandial glucose levels. And, and in this intervention, they also were able to meet with our dietitian and receive information, more nutrition related to a Mediterranean lifestyle. And, and then with that information, they were armed with what they needed or, or, or hopefully the information they needed to make some nutrition decisions. So there were, we did glucose tolerance tests prior to the initiation of insulin therapy just to see what their response was prior to going on insulin, glucose tolerance tests after therapy with a variety of responses. And so I, to your point, and, and the reason why I guess I, I'm discussing this in, in different ways, we assess the HOMA IR as well, but there hasn't been a standardization as to what's the preferred way to really assess the beta cell mass, beta cell responses pre and post intervention. And, and there are a variety of ways to do it, and, and we report as such. But that's why larger-scale trials are needed to try to clarify and elucidate what this measure should be. So what do you see as the uh, the future of technology in the diabetes space? You know, what's needed now? We have the CGMs. Is the a CIM coming, again, continuous insulin monitor, or even measuring C-peptide as well? Like what, what do you think will be the so, next step for people? So what exists presently, which is very exciting, are um, these hybrid closed-loop systems. And so that means insulin pumps that communicate with the continuous glucose monitor. And through that communication, it responds, the insulin pump responds to the information that it's that is being fed to it by the continuous glucose monitor. And so what some pump systems are able to do is if they are told that blood sugars are dropping and a low is ensuing, the insulin pump decreases the amount of insulin that's being administered to the individual in the attempts to prevent a hypoglycemic event. And that's been around for several years. More recently, pumps now are able to increase insulin delivery based on the feedback from the continuous glucose monitor if it, if it senses that there's a large rise coming. And the way in which it does so varies based on the pump. Each pump company has its proprietary algorithm in order to address these fluctuating blood sugar um, levels. What doesn't exist in clinical care yet is the ability to, for the individual to hook themselves up to the insulin pump, put on their monitor, and be hands-free. 
in the sense that it doesn't need to tell the pump what uh, the individual doesn't need to tell the pump what they're eating, what activity level they're doing. Essentially, what we're the gold um, standard, you know, the holy grail of all of this is to have an artificial pancreas that somebody can wear to take that burden off the individual. There, we have a lot of studies that are ongoing, and we, as in the medical community, have studies ongoing right now testing that specifically. And it's really exciting to see the data coming out because what what is involved in that is coming up with an algorithm that can sense all these different hormonal signals, glucose signals that are coming at it and be able to make appropriate delivery recommendations to keep these blood sugars at goal. And now insulin isn't the only hormone that's essential in this. There's also glucagon that we have to mention, which is also a medication that's used to rescue low blood sugars if that happens. And so it's really exciting and fascinating to see the work that's going in. There are promising results coming out of these complete closed loop systems. And so that's the future is a complete closed loop system. We have a hybrid closed loop where the individual still needs to be hands-on still needs to tell the pump what they're eating, how many grams of carbohydrate they're eating. And where we're headed is this complete closed loop where an individual plugs in, if you will, is able to oversee the decisions that this technology is making, but not have to carry a lot of that burden anymore, which we've been asking individuals to do for years and years and years. Yeah, I spoke to someone at the Open Pancreas Project. They said they had gotten to the point where they were very accurately, they were very able to determine accurately when someone was getting, with eating something, uh, what their blood sugar would do. So it sounds like the technology could get there with enough data and, uh, be very predictive, very useful. And you give her just, you give just the amount of insulin needed, you know, over time with the lag of its effect to make sure someone's stable. Exactly. I mean, how exciting is that? Where it, yeah. it, it's, it's really thrilling and to, to see the data that's coming from this and just seeing how close we are. So it's it really is something that interests me certainly and thrills me just thinking how this can help the patients that I work with with their diabetes control. Well, what's the closest proxy you can get? I have a right now a CGM and an insulin pump that are tied together. Does does that exist now uh, clinically? It does. Yes, it does. Okay. We have that available for our patients. And, you know, what I, what I want to say too, and I think is important to mention is we have these from our diabetes technology um, companies who work very hard in coming up with the algorithms and the technology to provide this. And I think it's also important to mention the consumer's involvement, the patient's involvement, because we've had individuals either living with diabetes or again having loved one with diabetes also taking the reins on this endeavor and forming their own algorithms they're using the technology that exists and coming up with their own uh, way of keeping these glucose levels in goal range and so what i'm alluding to is the whole looping community so they these were a group of individuals who had very personal stories related to specifically type 1 diabetes and they took it upon themselves to also use the technology that was available come up with algorithms 
to help keep glucose levels at goal. And they now have a tremendous following. And it's and I've had the privilege of working with individuals who actually use this type of technology. There are, you know, they accept the risks involved, but the benefits that they get from it, at least from the feedback that I've received from those who have decided to to do this, has been quite impressive. And it's not an FDA approved therapy, but uh, there are also a lot of therapies that aren't necessarily FDA approved that are used off label. And, and so the individuals who who look at this understand that risk have to have a certain amount of technological savvy. But I, I, I mentioned this group as well because it just goes to show how when individuals who have skin in the game have access to this data can also be quite innovative. And this innovation begets innovation. And I think the diabetes technology companies also pay attention to this and, and, and actually work, reach out and try to work with them. And, and so it's, it's really neat to see how this is in existence now. And hopefully in the near future, um, we can have a fully automated system. Well, very good. So Sandra, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Yes, absolutely. So they can always visit the, I'm an endocrinologist at the University of Pittsburgh. And so please reach out to me through that website. My email as well is an excellent way to get in touch with me. I'm always excited to discuss diabetes and diabetes technology with individuals and look forward to any future conversations with individuals. Very good. Thank you so much. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.